group, you guys are dismissed. Look at them sprint for the door. You guys are headed out with Pastor Tosh this morning. Everybody else, do you mind, you know what I'm going to ask? Turn to somebody, tell them you're glad to see them, right? Give them a hug even, a handshake. And again, if you don't like that, then just sit here like this, and that's okay. And somebody will come to you. All right. All right, all right. Don't get carried away. That's enough of that. Hey, grab a Bible, if you would. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. In chapter 11, you remember that we saw the seeds, right? We watched the start of what would be the rebellion, right? The Pharisees rejecting Jesus' messenger, John the Baptist, right? Not repenting despite all of these different signs that we saw, the mighty works that we saw Jesus doing. And then as we looked together last week at the beginning of chapter 12 with Pastor Rick, we saw this rebellion against the king just getting more and more fierce, more and more organized, more and more intentional, if you will. These leaders launched this multi-pronged assault, and it started last week with this rebellion against Jesus' principles. We saw him, them questioning him on his convictions regarding the keeping of the Sabbath, right? Their legalism, right? Killing rather than letting love give life. And this morning, as we pick up together in verse 22, we're going to witness two more of these separate but very strategic strikes by these religious leaders. We're going to watch Jesus effortlessly deflect their attempts, and instead we're going to see him direct them to really look inwardly and to search their own hearts personally. And it's a process, of course, that I think we'll find that he so gently asks of us the very same thing, that we would check our hearts, right? And I hope that we're going to be encouraged as we just allow the Spirit to really do that, to search us this morning. But let's pray and just ask that the Lord specifically would just bless his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement that it brings, Lord. We thank you for the way that your Spirit uses it in each of our lives, Lord, to truly search our hearts, Lord, that you know us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do that this morning, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest, that you would give us ears to hear what he would say to each one of us individually, Lord, and, and to your church corporately. And we thank you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a, a young successful couple that finally went out and purchased their dream home. And very shortly after purchasing it, they were sitting at the kitchen table about to, you know, indulge in this delicious breakfast. And the wife looked out their window. And to her surprise, what she saw was her neighbor hanging dirty laundry on the clothesline to dry. And so she says, that laundry isn't even clean, right? It's still dirty. And she said to her husband, obviously, somebody needs to teach this woman a thing or two when it comes to washing and hanging things to dry. And a couple of days later, at breakfast time again, the couple sits down at the kitchen table, and the wife sees this, this woman again hanging her clothes up 
on the line, but something was very different. And this time she said, wow, look at that. She says to her husband, those clothes are so very clean. Somebody must have taught that poor woman how to wash her clothes. And of course, you know, eating his breakfast, not even raising his head from the plate, his husband kindly responded, actually, honey, I just got up early this morning and I washed the windows. <laughs> Don't tell me you never heard that one before. Right? So, of course, we can so easily see that so often the way in which we are going to perceive both people and the world around us is colored or even distorted depending on the window through which we're looking, right? And, and that, you know, a, a good thorough washing of our own windows, if you will, can really change our perspectives entirely. Now, I know you guys are a smart, well-taught group of Bible students. It's not a long leap for us to see that the application isn't, this morning, one about home maintenance or home improvement. It's not about our eye health, but it's about our hearts, of course, isn't it? Which can sometimes be hardened and really affect our perspective. One Christian author said this. He said that if the heart is hardened, the intellect is darkened. And we're going to see that truth perfectly played out in the Pharisees as they looked at Jesus, right? Everything he said, everything that he did, and they were looking at it through the dirtied windows and the darkened intellect of their own hardened hearts. And so they needed to do what we should do as well, check your heart, right? When their rebellion against his principles failed, in the first part of the chapter, now they're going to launch this next strategic strike. It's a rebellion against his power. Look at verse 22. It says that then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all of the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, I love this because some have actually suggested that this was a setup here, right? That it was the Pharisees who had actually tried to lay this trap, bringing to Jesus this especially difficult case, right? This man was both blind and mute as a result, we conclude, of demon possession. Now, this, of course, would make any communication with him almost impossible, right? Of course, he couldn't see what someone might want him to do, and while he could hear their instructions, he wouldn't be able at all to respond. And yet, what does it say? It says that Jesus healed him, right, effortlessly. He removed the demon, its damaging effects. He made this man whole. And so the people, it says, they were understandably, what's it say in verse 23? They were amazed. It can also be translated astonished. Literally, what it means is that they were beside themselves, and it wasn't simply, I don't think, because of this miraculous healing, but even more so, it was because of their messianic expectations, right? Because the very things which had been promised that the Messiah would do, now were being done. And so they're asking, hey, is this the promised Messiah? Is this David's descendants who, who has come now to rule over us and to bring healing to our nation? So the crowds are asking this, but the religious leaders, look at verse 24, they had a slightly different response. It says that when the Pharisees heard it said, 
or heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So here you have the crowds reacting with this great messianic expectation, but the leaders responded with an accusation. Right here they attribute Jesus' power to the prince of the demons. Think about it. Their plan had backfired. Here the people are beside themselves. The Pharisees have no other choice but to accuse Jesus of somehow working according to the power of Satan himself. What else could they say? Right? He was healing. He was affecting so many. They had to come up with some explanation for his power. And isn't it interesting, have you ever noticed, maybe the same is true in your own life, nothing has changed to this day. The very same thing still happens, so oftentimes even within families, whenever someone chooses to believe that the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, right, these radical changes that can happen in a Christian's life, so often so many will write those things off simply as brainwashing, right, or, or hopeful thinking, or manipulation, or emotionalism, right, instead of attributing those things to what we know to be the power of God. Now watch the way that Jesus answers their accusation. In verse 25, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He says, now you guys aren't even making any sense. He says, if I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan, then Satan's house is divided and Satan is fighting against himself. Satan may be wicked, but he's not a fool, is he? What you're saying is illogical, Jesus says. And not only illogical, look at the next verse, it's also hypocritical. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. See, what's interesting is that the Pharisees actually endorsed certain exorcists. They went traveling throughout the community trying to cast out devils. And the problem with these guys was that they weren't very successful. Right? They would use herb and different sort of magical formulas and chants. And the results, of course, were not surprised, were probably insignificant. And yet all of a sudden, here the Pharisees are faced with an actual successful exorcism. And so they accuse Jesus of working according to satanic power. But watch Jesus next. He's going to explain that there's an altogether different power that's actually at work here. In verse 29, he says, How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, Jesus was able to cast out demons because he had first defeated Satan, the prince of the demons. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm not under Satan's power. Instead, quite the opposite. I'm proving that I'm stronger than he is 
by casting him out of those that have been possessed. And since I'm casting these devils out truly by the Spirit of God, you need to acknowledge that the kingdom is here and that I'm representing it, right? That, that it's here in your midst, really. You need to acknowledge that that great messianic expectation of the crowd is real and it's right. Jesus says, you guys need to what? Check your hearts. See, there's a, a, an important reminder here in this for us, and that's simply this. Jesus is stronger than the strong man, Satan. Amen? In 1 John chapter 4, it says that he who is in you is what? Is greater than he who's in the world. Jesus has the authority to bind Satan's power and to plunder Satan's house. And I believe that Jesus looks at every life Every life here this morning that's been delivered from Satan's domination. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time. I want to encourage you this morning. There is nothing in any one of our lives that needs to stay under Satan's domination. Because the one who can bind him, the one who can plunder his goods, the one who can take back all of those things that Satan has stolen from so many, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So those things in our lives that Satan considers to be the spoils of his victory, right? whether it's our, our hidden fears or those secret sins or the shame that we carry around, the guilt or, or apprehension about our future, all of that, remember, Jesus is stronger than the strong man. He's able to go right into Satan's realm, right right into the strong man's house, into the demonic world, of course, and come away taking back those spoils of victory. So whatever it is for you this morning, right, whatever it is that Satan has stolen from you, wherever it is that Satan is claiming victory over you, know that Jesus is stronger. Here the kingdom and the power of God had come back to earth, right? In the power of Jesus Christ. And so it's like these battle lines have been drawn. And so watch the way that Jesus continues giving these men this scathing indictment, right? This strong admonition. He's, he's revealing this desperate place of these people that, could, that, that were hardened enough to attribute his workings to satanic power. Verse 31 and 32 says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now remember where we've come from. We've seen this man released of a demon. We've seen the Pharisees attribute this miracle to the power of Satan instead of God. So now Jesus gives this heavy word to their hardened hearts. He says, look guys, you started out speaking illogically as well as hypocritically, but now you are jeopardizing your own souls eternally. 
Because if these men hadn't already done so, they were dangerously close to committing the blasphemy of the Spirit, rejecting his witness, rejecting his ministry to their hearts, which, according to Jesus, is the only unpardonable sin. Now, before we go on to talk about that, I think we should take a moment and just let that sink in. Jesus said that every other sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. So for any of you here today who struggle with condemnation over past sin and failures, for any of you here this morning who doubt that the Lord could actually forgive you and who could bring restoration to your life, Jesus here tells us otherwise, doesn't he? I've mentioned already that my testimony is pretty radical, right? It includes failure and sexual sin and incarceration. But all of these things the Lord has redeemed and he used as preparation for the new life and for the calling for which he was preparing me. Now, it's a story for a different day. There's an article about it on the Regen Church website from years ago in case you want to go and to celebrate the work that God can do. But suffice to say that it is nothing less than a rescue by the Lord Jesus from the depths and the depravity of sin and of tragic mistakes. But, you see, according to his word to me, according to his word to the rest of you this morning, we, you know, so many of you have similar rescue stories from whoever it was that you were before Christ. But what does God's word say? It says that if anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation, right? And that old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Jesus has washed me. He has washed you completely clean. And he's working to restore and to redeem and to bring healing because what? Every other sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, right? Based on that atoning work of Jesus on the cross, unless we harden our hearts, unless we refuse to accept it. There is nothing that is beyond the reach of Jesus' redemptive power if we're open to it. Now, in the scriptures, right, think about the story of David. We know that adultery is not unpardonable. Even murder is not unpardonable, nor a, a host of other evils. But it's when a person persists in rejecting Christ, when they come to that place in his or her heart where it's so calloused that they have no concern over their eternal destiny, that's when it's too late. Because in that rejection, they're actually rejecting the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15 that the Holy Spirit's main ministry is to testify of who? Jesus. He says that when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. See, it's the Spirit who bears witness to our hearts about the words of Jesus. And when that witness is fully and finally rejected, when a person refuses to believe that still, small voice that's speaking to their hearts, what they know deep down is true, 
They know that the gospel is right. They know that sin is wrong. They know that Jesus is real. They know that forgiveness is possible. But when one has willfully allowed the lies of Satan to drown out the truth of the Spirit, then they have truly blasphemed him because they've called him a liar in respect to his testimony about Jesus. And these religious leaders, right, because of the hardness of their hearts, they were very close to this. Now, I want to say this. You may have seen, you may have heard of this. There are people as a joke or as a dare or as one of these stupid challenges on YouTube. They intentionally will say words that they suppose are committing this sin of the blasphemy against the Spirit, thinking it's a, a light thing to joke with evil and with eternity. And yet, understand that true blasphemy against the Spirit is more than just a formula of words. It's a, a settled disposition of your life that rejects this testimony of the Spirit regarding Jesus. So even if someone has intentionally said these kinds of things, even if they've taken one of these challenges, they can still repent. They can still prevent that settled rejection. It's not simply a matter of words. It's a matter of what? It's a matter of the heart, right? So watch the way Jesus continues. He's going to explain how the words that came out of the religious leaders actually betrayed what was really going on inside of them. In verse 33, he says, The either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So, words matter. Right? Of course they matter in so many different ways, but mostly our words matter because they rightly reflect our hearts. So in that sense, we can rightly be judged by our words. These men had bad fruit of their words right, as they were condemning Jesus, and that just revealed that growing bad root in their hearts. But isn't it interesting? Jesus basically says if they get their hearts right with God, then their words about him would also become right. So again, this morning, pay attention to your words, right? I'm encouraging you as I'm encouraging myself. But not only because it will bless and benefit all those around you, but also in the sense that our words can be a pretty good indication of what's actually going on in our hearts, can't they? I know that I can get to that place where I can hear myself lapsing into an attitude that's judgmental and that's critical or an attitude that's uncharitable. And I know I'm the only one who struggles with this. I know that none of you guys deal with this. And yet when I do hear that, 
sometimes that's my first clue that my heart is drifting. That I'm drifting from that place of intimacy and of communion and I need to check my heart, right? I need to take a page from Paul's playbook where he says that whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely and whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, what? Meditate on these things, right? Let those things, you know, think them through. Let them settle in. Let them wash my windows a little bit. And when we do that, oh, how the view improves, doesn't it? Check that out, right? Now here, Jesus right, takes a page from John the Baptist's playbook, doesn't he, where he calls the Pharisees this brood or a generation of vipers, which was justified because they were children of who? Of that old serpent, the devil. Right, So, of course, the heart of their issue was an issue of the heart. They had this form of godliness, but they really didn't know God. And their words gave them up. These poor guys are a hot mess. Right? They had rebelled against his principles, right, in that whole thing about the Sabbath. They had rebelled now against his power in accusing him of working with Satan's enabling. And when neither of those things worked, watch next, their next attempt is to rebel against his person. Right? Watch the way they demand proof of his mission, proof of his ministry. Verse 38, it says that then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay, a sign? Right? Seriously? Did they just tune in? But of course, their request to see a sign really just expressed another way in which they were hoping to be able to reject him, right? Because if Jesus would perform or provide a sign, they would just find something wrong with it, right? They'd find some way to speak against it, right? Hoping to prove to themselves and, of course, to the crowds that Jesus was who they had already determined he was, that he was some kind of an emissary of Satan. Because had they honestly searched the scriptures... Right? Had they sincerely examined his life and looked at his ministry, they would have already concluded that this is the Son of God. And yet their hearts were so hardened. And so look at verse 39. It says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus assured them, you're going to get your sign. He said, but it's going to come in his death and his burial and his resurrection, which had already been foreshadowed to them in their own scriptures. See, Jonah was a prophet far beyond just his preaching to Nineveh. Jonah's whole life was a prophecy or a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Jonah gave his life 
to appease the wrath of God that was coming upon the other, you know, others on the boat, right? But of course, death didn't hold him. And after this three days and three nights of imprisonment, Jonah was suddenly alive and set free. This is one of those glorious pictures of Jesus in a pretty unexpected place. So the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus, and it's the one and only sign that Jesus promised as a validation of his work and of his ministry. And that's why the resurrection is so vitally important, because it's the one sign upon which we build our faith. It's the one sign so often that can penetrate even the hardest of hearts. You think about it to the Corinthians, Paul devotes 58 verses in chapter 15 to the resurrection. And in summary, he says that if a person doesn't believe in the resurrection, then they're actually not really a Christian. In chapter 15, starting in verse 14, toward the end, he kind of concludes saying that if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 19, if in this life we have hope, only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So for Paul, right, for Jesus, our faith hinges on the resurrection. Have you ever asked the question, how do I know? How do I know if the cross really worked? Or how do I know if God was really satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus? How do I know if my sins really are forgiven? The answer, the resurrection. It's the resurrection that proves that Jesus was the Messiah. It proves that his work on the cross was complete. The empty tomb is proof that all of these strong claims that Jesus made, all of the exclusive claims that he made are absolutely true. You know, our individual stories, right, the ways that the Lord has worked in our lives, those can be such a powerful tool in trying to lead somebody to faith in Jesus. But again, can I encourage you this morning, the most powerful prod to salvation that we can possibly provide is to talk to people about the resurrection of Jesus. It's provable historically, it's undeniable philosophically, it's understandable logically, and it's crucial theologically. Among others, Lee Strobel, an author, says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested event of the ancient world. And that's pretty strong language when you consider Strobel's credentials, right? He wrote all of the Case 4 books, right? He was a, a educated at Yale Law School. He was employed as a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist until 1981. Strobel is not a guy that can easily be accused of drinking the Christian Kool-Aid. Right? He has this credibility as one who doubted and even opposed the story of Jesus, but in his investigation and in his research, after openly examining the evidence, he came to faith. 
So for us this morning, we should study, we should understand the resurrection. We should make it a focal point of our witness. There's so many great books and so many great resources that are out there on this. Jesus said it's the one sign that was going to be given. It's the, seemingly the one sign which would be able to pierce even the hardest of hearts. And then Jesus continues, right? He's going to try to help them see how hard their hearts had become. Now he's going to sort of take an example from their own history books. It says in verse 41 that the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, look, you're asking for a sign. I'm God's sign. But you have failed to recognize me. He says, even the Ninevites recognized God's warning through Jonah. Even the queen of Sheba recognized God's wisdom in Solomon. But watch the way now he's going to take this history lesson and he's going to draw out an application, right, and another very pointed admonition, right? This is a practical truth based on a spiritual reality. It says in verse 43 that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now, as intriguing as these verses are, in the context, Jesus' point primarily wasn't focused on the principles of demon possession. Again, that's another discussion for yet a different day. But the point here is the seriousness of rejecting him as completely as these religious leaders had objected him. Now, it's another indictment, if you would, of this wicked generation of the, the people of Israel as a nation and of these men standing in front of him. And it's an indictment of the empty religious system that the nation had embraced and that these men represented. Because from their history, what Jesus is saying is, look, you may, as a country, have cleaned yourselves up from the idolatry that plagued your country during the times of the Old Testament. You may have had a sort of a reformation, but although you've swept the country clean of idols, seven times as many demons are going to come in and flood in because you're rejecting me. Because simply... Reformation is never enough. There needs to be regeneration. See, Reformation can cleanse, but it can't fill. And if you will, there, there is spiritual truth to Aristotle's observation that nature abhors a vacuum. Right? The nation of Israel should have received the Savior. They should have then been filled with spiritual life. But instead, they rejected him and their end was destruction because 
they became filled with their own pride and arrogance and their own self-righteous religious observance. Notice Jesus is speaking specifically of Israel, but isn't he also speaking to us personally on this? Isn't he also speaking to the church corporately on this? In that it's not enough to clean house, but we also need to invite the right tenant in. Here the Pharisees were so proud of their clean houses, and yet their hearts were still ultimately empty, right? Mere religion or, or mere personal reformation cannot save. There has to be regeneration. There has to be that spiritual rebirth by the power of the Spirit in the human heart. And then there has to be the receiving of the Spirit of Jesus Christ into that heart at that moment. And notice, Jesus makes a strong statement here that anything short of that will actually leave a person worse off than they were before. And this is precisely why, I want to be very careful here, this is precisely why self-help strategies and empty religious systems and secular humanistic approaches to better mankind's experience, even moralistic living by good people of society, all of these things can often be some of Satan's most masterful strategies because what they do is they each provide just enough perceived improvement to make a person comfortable and content as they continue to live in a Christless existence and as they slip slowly into a Christless eternity. Do you see that? We need to be so careful that we're not trying to just get people to clean up their lives, but that we are striving with them to be born again, right? Because the work of the gospel is by the Spirit, and it happens from the inside out, doesn't it? Remember back in chapter 4, when we read about Jesus calling Peter and Andrew, he says to them that what he says to us, he says, follow me and I will make you cleaners of oh no wait he says I'll make you fishers of men doesn't he see we need to remember we can't clean the fish until we catch them and we so need to take these words of Jesus to heart keep our focus about regeneration not reformation keep our focus about the rebirth inwardly and not simply reform Outwardly. Now, absolutely, we should certainly seek to be involved in community activities and even political undertakings. But as we're involved, we need to realize that our ultimate goal is to see people changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because really, church, that's all we have to offer, isn't it? As the church, that's what we have to offer. We need to be salt and light so that we're drawing people to and so that we're reflecting back the Lord Jesus. Now I know that all of this focus on Jesus and regeneration and the new birth, I know it can be alarming to some, it can even be rejected by others, but as we finish up, we can take some comfort in understanding that these words of Jesus actually seemed radical even 
to his own family. Look at verse 46 and 7. It says that while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside speaking, seeking to speak with you. Now likely they were worried about him, fearing for his safety, right? Sensing this impending confrontation, here his own family comes to take him away because they knew that one does not simply call the Pharisees a brood of vipers and get off scot-free. Anybody? One does not simply Right? It certainly hadn't worked out too well for John, had it? But, verse 48, he answered and he said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, these words in this last verse should sound somewhat familiar. Remember that at the end of um, chapter 11 in verse 28, he gave us that open, that priceless invitation, right, to all who are weary and heavy laden. And now here, again, he uses this wonderfully inclusive language. He invites any and all who would come to the Father and do the will of the Father. Anyone can be part of his family. Imagine it. What great grace, right? He says, whosoever, even, did you know that whosoever even includes these hardened religious leaders who had deepened their hostility toward Jesus? They were plotting against him, but he says that even they could come and be part of his family if they would simply check their hearts, right? They needed to wash their windows. They needed to come to him and submit their hardened hearts. You know, so often it's said, it's true, we can't choose our family, right? And yet Jesus did, didn't he? Because if we believe on him, whom the Father has sent, he chooses us to be part of his family. And it says in the book of Hebrews, it says that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Think about that. Before the world began, Jesus chose us to be related to him personally and to live with him eternally. And he did it despite the fact that each and every one of us in this room, at one point, our hearts were as hardened as these men in this chapter. We all spent time rebelling against his principles and against his power and even against his person. But God, right, it says in Romans, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that when? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's amazing. If you're here this morning, and your heart is still hard, and yet you feel it melting away. You feel the Spirit speaking to you. You feel the Spirit bearing witness to you of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let another day go. Don't walk out of here the way that you walked in here. There will be prayer counselors up to my right and to my left. These people are specially gifted and called and equipped 
to pray with you and to minister to you and to help explain this so that you understand it. Don't leave here the way that you walked in here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and we thank you for your word, Lord. And as difficult as it is, Lord, some of these things that that your son had to say to people, Lord, we take it and we receive it and we trust, Lord, that you're working in it and you're working through it. And Lord, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would minister to us, Lord, help to, um, help to soften those hearts that have become hardened, Lord. Help us to be open to that continued ministry of your spirit, Lord. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together.